Inadequate communication skills can be costly in terms of relationships, reputation, and revenue. From staff to the C-suite, all employees deserve quality training that will help them be successful. If your company is looking to improve employee morale and relationships, contact Communication 24-7 today by visiting www.communication247.com for a free 30-minute consultation. Communication 24-7 provides tailored training programs that help organizations create positive and productive work environments. Also, check out the Communication 24-7 podcast, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Communication 24-7 podcast, where we communicate about how we communicate. I'm your host, Jennifer Furlong. Today, I have a special guest, Karen Micus, and Karen has been a registered nurse for 25 years. She spent the last three years as a hospice nurse and most recently established a death doula consulting business. She's serving the needs of families and their loved ones as they transition. And that's the reason why I asked Karen to be a guest on the show, because one of the things that we need to talk about, probably uh, one of the things we need to talk about the most (laughs) is one of the things that we want to talk about the least, and because it can be a very uncomfortable conversation for many people. So if if you're wondering about what is a death doula, what does what does uh, what does that position entail, and why is it important to have the types of conversations that we're going to talk about today? That's why Karen is here. So Karen, thank you so much for being on the show and for offering your expertise in this area, because I know that there are going to be a lot of people who need your guidance, because this is not an easy topic to talk about. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be here, you know, for making my Monday even more special. Um, And you're right, it is a very difficult conversation because we don't talk about it. And it's, it's uncomfortable to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. It could be very uncomfortable. So, uh, for anyone who tunes in during the live stream, I do want to remind you that we're live on Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube. So if you would like to be a part of the show, if you have a comment, please feel free to share. If you have a question, and that's probably the most important aspect of doing these things live. If you have a question, Please make sure, don't be shy, ask the question because we want to make sure that anything that you are concerned about or worried about or just curious about as we talk about end of life transitions, know that that's why we're having this episode today. So please feel free to be a part of it. Karen, could you just take a couple of minutes and just say more about who you are, what you do? Um, And I'm, uh, and I know a lot of people will be curious about this. Why did you decide to make this transition yourself from uh, being a a registered nurse to being a death doula? So what's that story? Yeah, great. It's a good story. And I get asked a lot about that story. Um, And essentially, you know, because of COVID, at the time I was a home care nurse 
providing hospice care. So I had access to all the nursing homes, all the places that folks didn't have access to. And I got firsthand experience of what it was like for those people in the nursing homes who were looking through the windows at their loved ones for a year. And the, the, the decline that that created for them, the isolation that that created for not only the person in the nursing homes, but the person, the loved ones on the outside, on the other side of the window. And it was, it was traumatic. It was dramatic. It was just something that I was not okay with. As a result of that, I started to investigate. What could I do? How can I help bridge that? that time, because the folks on the inside could see the folks on the outside, the people on the outside didn't know what was happening. You know, Mm -hmm. how could I create that bridge? These people were dying very slowly Mm -hmm. of isolation. Um, So it really called to me to to Mm -hmm. do something about it. So I did some investigations some research. Somebody mentioned the word death doula, and it was like my heart just exploded. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Traditionally, a death doula is not medically certified. Um, so they do a lot of, a lot more hands-on stuff, uh, bedside nurse, bedside care, post-mortem care. Um, they can also have conversations to help facilitate uh, transition. As a nurse and a death doula, I can actually ease the process. I can collaborate with, med- with uh, medical professionals, doctors, other hospice organizations to administer medication during that time. Um, mm-hmm. And if I, I've expanded that into being able to have conversations before you get there. Like, do you have a living will? Do you have a power of attorney? Do you have somebody who is your healthcare agent when you can't speak for yourself? And my favorite part is creating legacy projects, like having conversations about, you know, gee, Jen, how do you want people to view you after you're gone? Would you like to leave video messages for your kids and your grandkids? Or, you know, do you want to write letters? Do you want to create a collage of pictures or, you know, a mobile with your your life in it? So it's really rewarding. It's really rewarding to assist patients, families to write that last chapter. There is so much in there I want to be able to unpack, and I have so many questions. And I actually, there were several people that I talked to because they knew that this was coming up today, and there were so many questions that I had people (laughs) tell me that they wanted me to ask you as well. So let's unpack all of this because um, there's several aspects to this that I know I'm curious about and others are as well. The first aspect that I'm curious about regarding you being a death doula, um, you are really there. You're not only supporting the one is in transition, the one who is in transition, right? But you do have a lot of conversations with that person. Do you have that opportunity? Like when you go in there, I guess you let them know exactly what you are doing for them in order to ease their transition, what is that conversation like for you? Because I can't even imagine my heart goes out to you and, you know, any of the family members as you're having to watch your family member, whether it's quickly or, you know, they're just gradually fading away. What kind of conversations do you have with 
that person who was preparing to transition? Yeah, that's a good question. And and it, and it can vary. Mostly it's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you. Okay. Like you're the one who's transitioning, yeah. uh, you know, and I would say, you know, Jen, do you, do you have a sense of what's happening here? First, I want to gauge what what's happening and then, you know, either they do or they don't. And then I ask, you know, can I be completely honest with you? Mm-hmm. And usually the answer is yes. Um, actually, I've never had anybody say no. <laughs> no, um, please lie to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I'll say to them, I said, like, you know, your time is your time is getting close, mm-hmm. you know, and I want to talk to you about that. Would that be OK? Mm-hmm. And usually that's another yes. And I'll say, you know, Jen, h- how would you like this to go? Mm-hmm. Would you like to pass at home? Would you like to pass in the hospital? Would you like to pass in, uh, there's a couple of uh, hospice facilities here in Connecticut that I could make a referral to and they can go there and pass. Do you want to be with your family? Do you not want to be with your family? If they're able to speak, I'll ask them if there's anything that they'd like to say or anybody Mm -hmm. they would like to talk to before they go. Like now is the Mm -hmm. time, Mm -hmm. you know, just to bring honesty and generosity to the situation. Like whatever you want is okay. And whatever you want, I'm going to make it happen for you. You know, if you want to talk to your son who you haven't talked to in 40 years and he lives in Bali, then Mm -hmm. I'm going to find a way to get a hold of him for you. I I imagine the family dynamics can be a little challenging for you because we all would love to believe or dream that when we're at that end of life transition, that we've been able to lay to rest all of the drama and the pain and the arguments, you know, all of those things that happen along the way. And sometimes it's very difficult for family members to let go of a lot of the trauma that may have occurred throughout that lifetime. Have you had to have those types of conversations? And can you give me an example of what what do you do if the person who's transitioning very much wants to be able to be at ease with that other family member, but then the other family member, you know, sometimes they'll agree to it and sometimes they won't. Yeah. You know, have you had those experiences? I have, I really have. And I'll say something along the lines of, um, you know, so I'll use you again, you know, Jen, Mm -hmm. I really get that you and your father haven't been getting along. Mm -hmm. Um, And right now, your father's dying. And I really, I would encourage you to just be with your father as your father and not as whatever you're upset with him Mm -hmm. about, because Mm -hmm. he's going to not be here shortly. Yeah. Yeah. If you want, you could be upset with him then, but I just would really encourage you to just be with your dad and love your dad Mm -hmm. no matter what. Once I drop the love bomb in there, Mm -hmm. (laughs) people Mm -hmm. usually people will acquiesce. They'll start crying. The emotions will show up and they'll just be able to be with that person. Sometimes it doesn't work, you know, and they're angry and they're going to be angry. And and then I'll go and I'll say something like, look, it's okay. I get Mm -hmm. that. You're really angry with your dad and you can be with him still with him and your anger. Mm Because this is the last time you're going to see him or this is this could be 
the last time you're going to see him. I always let them know. You know, I try and be as honest as possible. And, um, you know, one of the questions that everybody asks, no matter where they are, is how much time? Mm -hmm. How much time? And I'll say, well, it's not really up to me. And what I can tell you is that, you know, mom hasn't eaten in one week. It's not likely that she's going to get past another week or 10 days. Or given, you know, the fact that you're mom is now kind of non-responsive and she's got these periods of time where she's not breathing at all. I would say it's like 24, 48 hours, which is where the nursing part of it, and not that a death doula couldn't make those assessments with the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not, I'm not afraid to put a, a time frame on it. And I imagine that is the advantage of having that medical background that you do have, because I mean, you're, you're looking at this individual, not only, you know, with the compassion through the lens of, you know, your family is here and you want to make sure that they're taken care of emotionally and as best as, you know, as whatever it is that you can do for the family, as well as the person who's transitioning, but just being able to have that extra layer of background knowledge and, and medical knowledge, I think probably would absolutely help you in those conversations. Just be real with them and say, look from an, a medical assessment, if you are hesitating to say whatever it is that you want to say, you know, you might want to go ahead and do that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Don't wait. Don't yeah. wait another 24 hours. It, yeah. it, it's very possible that could be too late. Um, And I've also heard, of course, family dynamics. I I know that every family probably feels like there's just some drama that goes on in their family. And, you know, I know that there are others who would wish that family members could just offer that sense of peace to the one who's transitioning. But then when there's that issue, for example, between mom and daughter or mom and son or whatever, there are the siblings that could be there. And they're like, you know, just let her transition in peace. Just give her what she needs. Just let her know you love her. And you have that one sibling who was just so adamant about not letting go of that anger and that, that hurt. It really has an impact on the whole family. At that point, I imagine you probably feel more like a therapist, even though I know you're not a therapist, but, um, you know, have you had to get in the middle of situations like that as well, as uncomfortable as it is? You know, I'll poke my head in. Mm -hmm. I'll poke my Mm -hmm. head in and I'll try and listen and really Mm -hmm. I'll try and steer the conversation away from the issue, you know, Mm -hmm. and into... Dad, dad's dying. Yeah. Yeah. Let's focus you know, on what's happening. Yeah, right here. yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Try to bring it to, to the now, mm-hmm. to, the, yeah. to the present moment. And mm-hmm. listen, I, I get that your mom and you have been fighting for years. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll try and recreate the issue to some degree, acknowledge mm-hmm. that it exists. And then, you know, again, ask permission for them to put it aside or yeah. I'll, I'll hold on to it for you. I'll say that sometimes, right? You know, I'll hold on to that for you. I just, I have so much respect for you and what you do in this, in this realm, because I personally, I don't know how difficult it, I know how difficult it could be for me to compartmentalize because I imagine, do you get to the point sometimes where it's so emotionally draining that, you know, have you ever questioned at the end of, you know, let's say a visit or something, you just kind of sit back and, you know, what do you do to recharge 
yourself to make sure that you're protecting your mentality, you know, your emotional state and, you know, your physical state and all of those things? Because I imagine it has to take a toll. It does. And it can. And, you know, I have a daily gratitude practice Mm -hmm. and I like to get out in nature as much as possible um, and just take deep breaths, just, you know, allow the sunshine to warm my soul really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a running, just a document of what folks have said, like their thanks Mm -hmm. to me. So when I get into my own head and I think I'm not making the difference that I'm really out here to make, I'll refer to that document. Mm, and, you know, mm-hmm. what people have said about the difference that I've made for them. And I'm yeah. like, okay, you know, today was a bad day right. or today was an emotional day or woof, that was a tough one. And then I just look at my own life and what I'm grateful for. Right. That's probably a good practice for all of us to mm-hmm. get into that. Because I mean, even though what I do and what most people do um, is probably not nearly as emotionally draining as as what you come across when, when you're uh, doing what you do, but it's still probably a really good practice to try to engage, you know, in that positivity. Um, Lorinda is joining us. Good morning, Lorinda. And she has a couple of questions. And I know Lorinda actually works in the grief space as well. Uh, She's wondering, do you get involved with the behavioral piece in your assessment? I'm not sure if I, do you understand what that is? The behavioral piece? The behavioral of the patient or the family. Okay. Give us a, maybe this, give us a scenario. You walk in, go from there. Oh, okay. So I guess maybe you've been called in. And yeah, Yeah, so I I can, this can make it, I can Mm -hmm. make this really real and really Mm -hmm. recent yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I had a patient, I walked in, never met this person before. He's in a recliner um, and he's been in the recliner since he got out of the hospital like three days ago and they just Mm -hmm. called us. Um, And this was, I was working as a hospice nurse in this Mm -hmm. particular role, but they, they overlap so much. Family surrounding this gentleman. He looks kind of okay. And when I ask him about his pain, um, he kind of says, Oh, it's fine. You know, mm. so I immediately, you know, I, I recognize that this man is stoic, that he's not really going to tell me the truth. And uh, I introduce himself, myself to him. I do a full set of vitals. And, um, you know, he's got, I, I already knew going in that he had some pancreatic cancer. Um, and his belly is just huge and it's hard. And, um, you know, I'm, I press on it a little bit, just run my hands over it really. And I can see him starting to grimace and guard. So I know that this man is uncomfortable to say the least. And his daughter's in the corner on the couch crying. His wife, um, he was, they were both like in their late seventies, early eighties. She's just watching me like a hawk and the son um, who was there is just, he, he looks disconnected. He looks like he's checked out. So, you know, I said to the, to the gentleman in the chair, to the patient, I said, you know, so you, you're kind of sick. And he's like, yeah, he goes, I think this is it. And I said, well, I think I agree. Mm-hmm. You know? And then I asked him, I said, so how would you like this to go? You know, if this is it, how would you like it to go? Do you want to pass here in your chair? 
Do you want me to bring in a hospital bed and some medications and try to make you more comfortable? And like, would you like it to go like that? I said, or would you like to go? And I mentioned this facility, which is literally five minutes away from him. And he says, I don't know. He goes, I think my family wants me to go to this place. I said, okay. I said, would it be okay if I spoke to your family? Mm -hmm. And he said, yes. So I actually went into the kitchen Mm. I spoke to the family, um, the daughter, she was just really beside herself with this anticipatory grief. Right. She just, she knew her dad was going, she just couldn't face it. I think the son was maybe not in denial, but just not wanting to deal with it. And, uh, the, the wife was completely appropriate. She knew what was going on. She knew he was going. And I said to them, I said, okay, so how do y'all want this to look? I said, I can certainly get nurses in here. I can certainly get some aides in here in a, in a hospital bed. We can put him right in the living room. We can medicate him and he can pass at home. And I looked at the wife and she's like, I don't think we can do that. And I said, okay, not a problem. Not being able to do that is not a problem. Right. I said, so do you want him to go to the facility? And she was, well, I don't know anything about it. I said, great. I know everything about it. Let me tell you. So I fill them in on the details, what it's going to look like. And then I said, do you all want a few minutes to talk about it? And she says, no, we would like him to go there. I said, okay, great. Let me make a few phone calls. So that's kind of how that went. And I just, this morning I opened up the computer and I, this man passed away this morning, you know, Mm. comfortable, clean, well cared Mm -hmm. for family at the bedside. Right. Everything that everybody wanted was accomplished. Wow. And it was just, I mean, I don't know exactly how it went, but I know that he was comfortable, he was clean, and his family mm-hmm. was at the bedside. And and to me, you know, it was a win-win because he just wanted his family. The family won because they just wanted him to be taken care of. There are a couple of things in there that I think is really important to underscore some things that you said right now. The patient not knowing, basically, I I don't know, just, you know, talk to my family. And by you being there, talking to the family, letting them know that how you're feeling right now is okay, that you're not familiar with how this goes, that's okay. You know, you're not familiar with the hospital or, you know, wherever it is that we're sending him. I'm here to let you know, to tell you about this. And I think that's probably something that on both sides that gave him such relief to know that there's somebody there that can kind of guide the family to help them make those difficult decisions because you don't even know what you don't know about this, you know, about what's happening right now. And so I guess what I just wanted to underscore why this is such a great offer that you have in helping families and helping those who are transitioning is that, you know, like you said, being that bridge, because I don't think he would have been able to articulate that because if he kept saying, like you said, he's being stoic, I'm fine, you know, or I, I do think this is it, but maybe he's reluctant to say that to his family, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because a lot of us do want to feign being strong for the family. Yeah. Oh, don't worry about this. I'll shake this off, you know, whatever. It'll be fine. Yeah. Um, And you kind of help soften, you know, soften the edges a little bit there. I mean, this guy, he had gotten this diagnosis two months 
prior to my arrival. He came wow. home. He picked out a funeral home. He bought plots. He even wrote his own obituary. Wow. So this is a gentleman. Mm. And in just learning that, I really got that this guy is, he's a caretaker. He's, he's right. a caretaker of his family. Mm-hmm. And there's, he's in this moment where he can't take care of his family. Uh, so it was probably such a huge relief to him when you came in and you kind of, you took control, like you knew exactly what needed to be done and you were honest with him. I agree with you. Yeah. I think, I think this probably is it. He probably appreciated that so much from you. Instead of the normal, oh, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry about anything. And if he's, you're able to assess that, that personality right there, he, this guy's a caretaker. Um, those types of words, that type of language is not exactly what's probably going to help ease his transition. He's going out worrying. Yeah. If you're just saying, oh, don't worry about things. Everything's fine. You know, and he's like, he's thinking, no, it's not fine. And I'm not able to do anything about it. But here's this person coming in. She knows exactly what's going on and she's going to be able to kind of take the reins. That's just amazing. That's an amazing thing. Do most hospitals or I guess not hospitals, but hospices, well, maybe also hospitals. I don't know. Do they have death doulas that work for them or do they contract death doulas or do families have to kind of seek it out themselves? Like within the medical establishment or within that structure, you know, how does this fall into place within that, that framework? Yeah. So I wish like more cancer centers, palliative Mm -hmm. care centers would hire death doulas, but they Mm -hmm. don't, it's kind of a, it's not a brand new thing in the U S but it's not a, it's one of the fastest growing um, areas in the U S but it's not, Mm -hmm. it's not common. People, people have, when I say I'm a death doula, they have no clue. Yeah. That was how it was when I first met you. I was like, what's a death doula? (laughs) Explain. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) So hospice facilities may have death doulas as volunteers. Okay. You know, kind of bridge. It's not recognized by Medicare. So it's hard for organizations Mm. to get reimbursed for those services. So they either offer them on a volunteer basis or, um, for me, it's it's through my consultation business okay. that I offer that service. All right. And so at least they have, like, do they have your information there? So as families need, I guess, you know, it gets close to that time and it's like, hey, here are some services that you might be interested in, you know, reach out, you know, if you feel like your family needs this. Yeah. I've actually made a lot of connections with uh, funeral homes. Mm. Um, and they have a little brochure in my card that they can pass out. But really, most of my exposure comes from uh, running online events. Um, you had my my co-collaborator, Craig Addy, on your show. That's right. Yes. So, you know, him and I have created this partnership where we explore grief together mm. and then kind of transform the grief into music. And that's really generated some 
contacts for me and some interest for me. Um, Because I I think I'm probably, like you said, there's not a whole lot of people that probably have come across, you know, like what is a death doula and what is it that they do and how do I get in touch with one? And I think a lot of people probably assume that it is something that either the hospital or the, you know, the cancer center, wherever it is that they are, it's just something that they would automatically provide. I'm just, this is just me asking now that you had mentioned how, you know, it's not necessarily a part of the framework because it's not approved by Medicaid or, you know, any of those things. Have you ever been in touch with, I don't know, like a representative or a congressman or a senator to see how that right there could possibly be changed? Because I don't know, it just seems like it's such an important thing that you offer. It should be something that is an option within the framework itself. It should be built in because I think they need it. The patients need it. The families need it. Yeah. Now I have not personally taken any of those actions. I do belong to a couple of different organizations Mm -hmm. that, you know, are out there lobbying um, Mm. for those kinds of things. Uh, You know, I think it's to come since COVID the rate of folks that are choosing to die at home Mm. has quadrupled. And given the ever presence of Mm. COVID now, um, Mm. you know, the hospitals really want those available beds. So they're Mm. also wanting folks to go home. Right. Um, So there's a, there's a pretty decent push for folks to go home, especially if you have a terminal illness, especially if you have, you know, six months or less, people are not Mm -hmm. really passing in the hospitals after long illnesses like they used to. Yeah. I imagine, yeah, the pandemic definitely pulled back. I mean, for many things, it pulled back a lot of layers of things that we've realized. Oh, you know, we're really not quite prepared. But I mean, anybody who has ever had the experience of, you know, having a loved one, um, not pass away. You know, like my father, he passed away suddenly. It was unexpected. He was only uh, 47. I think he was, no, he was 48. He had just turned 48 because it was in March of 2000. He had just turned 48 in January of 2000. Um, So it was very unexpected. So for someone like me who didn't have that option to you know, have that ability or or option to have that conversation, you know, that end of life conversation and to have closure. Do you continue to work with families that haven't quite been able to get that sense of closure? Or do you have anyone like someone like me, you know, uh, that you have conversations with and try to help them get closure? I know that's what something that you and Craig, you know, you had had mentioned uh, Craig Addy earlier that you two um, have put together a program for something like that. I guess I just want to hear more about your experiences with that because it just seems like it's such a different thing to be able to have that end of life conversation with your loved one versus they're taken away suddenly. And now you're just kind of left with, all right, uh, I can't say what I needed to say, you know, that that's something that a lot of people, uh, you know, try to manage themselves. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, grief, grief support. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not really high on anybody's list. We're not Mm -hmm. 
we're not a human beings do not put themselves first as far as Mm. care goes, you know, Mm. and this is really inside the realm of mental health. Uh, Grief can Mm -hmm. show up for a long time. Um, You know, some folks believe in stages of grief. Others do not. My approach to grief is just to be there, you know, Mm -hmm. having been someone who has been at the point where somebody passed, if I have that honor to be there, then I get, I'm automatically included, Mm. you know, in the conversations with the family. So I can just listen and I can invite, I can suggest to go to grief support. I can suggest that they, you know, express themselves in a letter, write a letter to your dad or mom Mm. or whoever. I have some friends who are counselors and I'll make referrals. I don't market myself as a grief expert or a grief, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody who provides grief counseling, but I do have connections and I can make referrals. Right. Um, And this, the event with Craig reflect, remember, renew is a perfect example uh, because him and I, you know, have had a really great success and folks have experienced a lot of healing when we Mm -hmm. transform your grief from your spoken word, your experience Mm -hmm. of your grief and he takes it and transforms it into uh, piano music. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's incredible because yeah. the music can reach you where your words can't. And the music expresses right. what your heart doesn't have words for. And never yet before said, uh, Craig and I are also going to um, collaborate with another person, Allison Pena. And we're going to have two, two Greek <laughs> retreats. Uh, next year, wow. 2023. Wow. Yeah. Exclusive. Yeah. I got the scoop. <laughs> I feel so yeah. honored. Yes. <laughs> the scoop. Yeah. So those are, you're going to have two in, in 2023. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Are they going to be uh, virtual or are you going to have an option where people can come in and, you know, like a physical retreat? How, how is that going to look? Or you don't have to give me too much detail if y'all so are So what, what I know. know so far Um, we're going to do an East coast and a West coast. Um, we're going to have a piano available. Uh, we haven't decided if it's one day or two day, we may stream portions of it, but essentially, um, you're going to come in person and we're going to just take you through a variety of activities that would Mm -hmm. help to express grief. Um, could be art, could be music, could be writing, could be movement, you know, some meditation, some yoga, maybe even some self-care. You know, we haven't really quite gotten all the details figured out, but it's just going to be creating a community and providing healing and love, love and loss coexisting. Yeah. Well, I'm going to look forward to talking about that even more in 2023. (laughs) So yeah, we're going to keep our ears open for that. You've shared a lot of really important questions as a death doula that you get to go in and find out a little bit more about the person who is transitioning and how they would like this to go and you know what is it that they need who who will be there have you ever had the unfortunate scenario where what the person who is transitioning they're expressing what they want how they would like it to go 
and the family is just absolutely at odds with that. And I know sometimes belief systems might come into play. All of those things, values might come into play. I'm very lucky in that my, well, actually I'll save that story. Let me, I I want you to answer that question first. And then while it's in my head, then I'll share my story. The reason I'm asking that. Um, That does happen kind of often. It's not an Mm -hmm. uncommon conversation to have. Uh, Most people want to go peacefully and without pain. And in order for that to happen, we use some pretty good combination of medications. Uh, For example, morphine and Ativan. And the result could be that, like, this person has been fighting, fighting, fighting. And finally, their pain is is kind of relieved. And their anxiety or their restlessness is also relieved. So then they're sleepy. Maybe Mm -hmm. even not responsive. But they're peaceful. Mm -hmm. And the family's not okay with that. Mm. You know, I don't want my father to be knocked out. And then we just have to educate. We just have to educate. And then maybe we don't, maybe we give them a half dose. And let the family experience a little bit of the restlessness. And then I'll, I'll, I'll have conversations with the patient, with the family in the room. You know, are you restless, Jen? Would you like a little more medication? You know, yes, I would. I, I'm, I'm yeah. filled with anxiety right now. Mm-hmm. So then I'll give them a little bit more. And then they'll seem to relax. But often families do not, they think that we're going to come in, we're going to dose them with some morphine, and then that's it. Right. Then they won't have the opportunity to say whatever it is that they wanted to say, which I don't know. I know my personality, (laughs) you you have to have such a, a special, I guess, calm, almost calm, uh, Zen-like maybe if you will, personality, because I would be so frustrated at what I would perceive to be as the selfishness of that moment. You know, when you have your family member is in pain and, you know, they've had it, they've had it, you know, we want them to be able to be at peace and not suffer. And so I don't know, do you have little tricks that you do or or say to just kind of keep yourself in that moment when you see that there's, There's some selfishness at play. Yeah. Um, So before I walk into any situation, I start to tell myself, there's nothing wrong here. Mm. There's Mm. nothing wrong here. You know, the patient is suffering. Families are suffering. A lot of times they've never been through this before. So there's a lot of not knowing. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of personality. But there's nothing Mm. wrong. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, so then I can eliminate things like selfishness. Like, Uh, okay, so, mm -hmm. you know, the daughter's just really, she's just really emotional. She's just really upset. She just really, whatever, fill in the blank. Maybe she's angry, but there's nothing wrong with that. Wow. See, that's why it takes such a person with that special understanding, uh, you know, special ability to take a step back and not get emotionally invested in what you think is right versus what's wrong in that moment. And that's such an important lesson. I think it's an important lesson for me, you know, and for anybody who's listening to this is that I guess there's not a right way and a wrong way for for anyone to deal with this 
incredibly emotional situation that, you know, everybody finds themselves in because what you're feeling is what you're feeling. And it's going to have an impact on what you say and the things that you do and what you're expecting and all of those things. And, um, you know, so that's, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Culture is Um, a big, big component. Lorinda was curious about the, your most difficult case. Have you had one that just stands out above all the others that you're like, wow, that was probably that. Yeah. (laughs) So young people, Mm -hmm. young people. And by that, I mean like anybody under the age of 60, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. who they're, they're just all of them. It just, they're just so like the only thing that keeps going through my head is like, they're so young. They haven't even lived yet, you know, Mm -hmm. and they probably, when you're younger like that, you've been fighting some, disease process for like a good five, six years. So the last Mm. 10 years probably hasn't been great, you know, and um, there's this, there was this one guy, he, um, so here's a case of the culture. He's Greek and he was not married, uh, no children. And his sister, who was also his business partner, took him into her home to take care of. He had, um, it's called the glioblastoma. So essentially a cancerous tumor in his brain that Mm. is inoperable and no longer responding to treatments. So those are, those are seem to me to be the toughest because it alters who the people are. Mm. It affects their personality and, um, their ability to process the information. So this, this guy, he was 40, three, 44 years old. His sister was just turning 40. She had a husband, two young kids. Uh, They together owned um, a very popular uh, diner, several of them here in Connecticut. And he kept saying to me, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Mm. And uh, I was like, no, tell me. And he's like, I own such and such diner. And I'm like, oh, you're the pancake place, right? And he's like, yeah, have you ever been? I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to go now. (laughs) Right? He was just, um, his whole demeanor was that he was this very successful businessman. And Mm -hmm. now he was relinquished to being incontinent. So he was having accidents. He was, you know, not really walking very well. His balance was completely off. He had lost 20 pounds in like a month. He was having trouble swallowing. He was being taken care of by his sister. And Mm -hmm. he was trying so hard to preserve his, you know, manly man persona. Mm -hmm. Because that's Mm -hmm. in the Greek culture that was very important, you know. And his sister also made it very clear to me that she knew that that was important to her brother. And she wanted Mm. to make sure that I knew it was important. And I was like, okay, I got you. So, you know, that's why I talked to him the way that I did. Tell me who you are, you know? Right. There may have been a time or in another place, another situation where I would have said in my head, I don't care who you are. Right. (laughs) You know who I am? No. Yeah. But, you know, in this, in this situation, I knew that this was really important to him. Just let him, just let him express. And he really couldn't talk. Like I couldn't, I couldn't get from what he he was saying, who he was. 
his sister was kind of filling in some of the blanks and talking for him. Okay. Yeah. And I imagine no matter what, that, that has to be difficult, especially for those who, if you, if you come down with some type of illness or disease where, you know, almost the opposite is happening where your brain and everything is fine, but it's your body that's shutting down and to have that hyper awareness that there's absolutely yeah. nothing you can do about yeah. it. You know, that would yeah. be so, I, I can't even imagine how frustrating and angry I would be, you know, disease. Yeah. ALS is like mm. by far the, the first thing that popped into my head, the worst, mm. your brain is completely mostly intact, but your body is just failing. And these folks have been fighting for years. You know, they lose their mobility. Then they lose their ability to swallow. So now they have a tube and they're being fed through a mm. tube into their belly. Finally, the thing that goes is their diaphragm. They can no longer mm. breathe. And either mm. they get a, a tube in their throat, a trach, and they get put on a ventilator or some kind of machine at night. But it's just, I, I can't, it's horrible. It's a horrible, yeah. horrible it disease. It's, it's heartbreaking. Have you, I, I don't know about the laws in the state of Connecticut, but um, have you ever had conversations or have the family, I guess, ever approached you with conversations about assisted suicide? Yes. Occasionally Mostly. that happens. Um, it's not legal in Connecticut. Uh, mm -hmm. The closest place is Vermont and that you need to have lived in Vermont for six months. I had a conversation with the, mm. this was part of the plan of this woman and her husband. Wow. Um, they were going to like in a two weeks, they were going to move to Vermont and establish residency and then get, they already had a doctor lined up. They were all set and she died. She died mm. before that could happen. Wow. Just all kinds of conversation. That just makes me think about families that haven't even had those types of conversations um, regarding the laws and what's legal versus, you know, not legal, what's acceptable, you know, I guess in the minds of the family, you know, according to values and belief systems. I know... I do encourage people to have conversations with loved ones regarding what they would like to happen when they do pass away. I had a conversation with my dad, but it wasn't because I approached him specifically to have the conversation. Cause remember I said that he died very young and unexpectedly. Um, he had been visiting with me one time. This is when I lived up in Virginia and he was up, you know, for like a long weekend. And it was one of those late nights. I think it was like a Friday or Saturday night or something. And we're sitting on the couch watching late night TV. And it was like Nat Geo or Discovery or something. And it just so happened that one of those documentaries came on where it talked about different cultures and their belief systems and how they manage death and dying and what do they do during funerals, you know, and all of those things. And we were just fascinated by it. And it just, it caused me to ask him the question, what do you want when you pass away? What do you want? And he told me, I want to be cremated. I never would have guessed that. Because that's not a conversation we had had previously. And if we had not just so happened to be watching that documentary, when he did pass away unexpectedly, you know, and in his sense of humor also, I know if I had not known, I know my dad's sense of humor, he would have been like, well, I'm dead. What do I care? You know what I mean? It's <laughs> whatever. But that just, I am thankful that that gave me the opportunity to know, like when that moment happened, I knew without a doubt 
Well, he said to me he wanted to be cremated. So that's what we're going to do. But there's so many others out there who have not had that conversation. So when it does happen, because a lot of times it is unexpected, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. They're at a loss. Like, okay, what do we do? How would you suggest families approach that topic? Because you almost, you don't even want to wait until someone's sick or diagnosed with something. Yeah, I totally agree. You don't want to wait. And sometimes if you wait too long, there's too many emotions involved that cloud the Mm. decision or the Mm -hmm. conversation. I always, I, I, I don't know where I picked up this, this tactic, but I always ask permission, you know, Hey, can I have a difficult conversation with you? Yeah. Or, hey, can mm-hmm. I have a personal conversation with you? Mm-hmm. You know, can we just pause for a minute? I want to I want to bring something up and I'm not really sure how to say it. Mm-hmm. So I'm just mm-hmm. going to say it. Those are all things that I use to mm-hmm. give people the heads up that something's coming your way. Right. You know, I don't want to surprise anybody and that it's it's sensitive. It's tricky. How would you like this to go? Right. You know, it all comes down to that. And, you know, dying is part of living. Mm -hmm. We're all going to get there. And, you know, fortunately for some of us, we get to say what that looks like. Mm -hmm. We get to design it. I want a party personally. Yeah. I tell everybody, I want to have a party. I want to have a big party. I want to be cremated. Set me up in something pretty. Mm-hmm. stick me somewhere and let's just have a party. Let's celebrate this life, you know, and, and whatever that looks like. I don't have any like directions about what the party looks like, but like, let's yeah. celebrate, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. Life. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, in a lot of cultures, that's exactly what it is. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, an interesting thing when you look at culturally how we view death and dying and um, how that person's life is remembered. And some cultures, it's a somber moment. Some cultures, it's that celebratory type of reaction. Down in New Orleans, I'm sure you've seen yeah. it, you know, they're marching through the streets yeah. and it's a huge parade with music and dancing. And like you said, it's a celebration. I personally would like to be in a bio urn. So I want to be okay. a tree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I saw it online somewhere and I was like, that's so cool. And I live on on the river. So I want to be in a bio urn and plant me uh, in a spot where I can oversee the river or, you know, yeah. near some type of water. So, you know, that's kind of like where I want to be, you know, yeah. in the life. You got to write that down. Yeah. You got to give it to yeah. all your loved ones. So everybody's on the same page. Yeah. Make it happen. Yeah. Yep. If you could make it a weeping willow, I'm just letting everyone know, I would love to be a weeping willow. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see that. So um, Lorinda actually had another question for you. You know, she was curious about all the cases that you've had. Do you feel fulfilled in your cases most of the time? I do. Most of the mm-hmm. time, I'll say 99% of the time, mm-hmm. I'm fulfilled. Yeah. I, I do the best that I can. I lead with my heart. I listen mm-hmm. to my heart. And um, yeah, I, I rarely walk away saying I should have, could have, would have. That's an amazing thing to know. And to know that you've made such a, a huge positive difference, you know, something that's important mm-hmm. for for these 
people who are in transition in their families. Um, I think she has one last question. Do you have any parts in the advanced directives? So in case anybody doesn't know, you know, what, what is an advanced directive first? And then I guess, do you, have you ever had any part in that? Yeah. So the advanced directive is, um, it's a document. It can be legalized, like notarized. It doesn't have to be, it could be a living will. It could just be a healthcare agent designee. Um, and I love to be a part of that because it is part of this whole conversation that, you know, you can have at any time. Do you want to be put on life support? Do you want to be fed artificially? Do you want CPR and compressions? And, you know, do you want to be a do not resuscitate? Um, those are all the types of things that you could include in your advanced directive. I think the biggest thing is to share with your loved ones what yeah. your wishes are, because even if you don't have those documents, um, mm -hmm. I think power of attorney medical and power of attorney financials, two separates, those are important to have after the fact, like in order for folks to uh, complete your estate, they would need some power of attorney from a financial perspective. Um, but, but as far as advanced directives and how you want to go, know, having your family know and having your family be on the same page is just as powerful as having it written on a piece of paper. Wow. So much good information here. So much to think about. I'm so glad that we had this conversation and you were willing to come on the show and tell us about what you do and, you know, a lot of the lessons learned, things that we just are so unwilling because it's not a fun conversation to have. Um, is there anything else that, you know, you, you think I, I missed or is there something that you just want to make sure that the audience hears before we wrap this up? I want everybody to know that having this uncomfortable conversation now will make just about every future situation an opportunity for love and loss to coexist. That's so important. Um, all right. So how do we contact you? Yeah. So the quietest house Q-U-I-E-T-U-S is, is my, my business, quietesthouse.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook, Karen Mikus and Quietest House. Uh, you can find me anywhere. Karen, again, thank you for sharing with us. Um, anybody who is listening to this right now, just take a moment, think about all of this information that was shared. And even though it's an uncomfortable conversation, it's difficult for so many of us. But I think Karen gave us some really good advice on how we could possibly approach, you know, some of these conversations, knowing how important it is. And there are some very specific things that we talked about as well. Everything from advanced directives to standard questions of how would your loved one want things to go? And it's going to make it easier for them, make it easier for you, just like what Karen said, so that love and loss can coexist at the same time. You know, that's the important thing. It's difficult, um, but, you know, it's also something that is a part of life. And um, let's do it as best as we can with as much dignity as we can and as, with as much compassion as we can for one another.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. Are you wanting to start a podcast but don't know where to begin? Try Alitu. Alitu is an online platform that uses very simple drag and drop tools designed specifically for podcasters. You can record and edit an entire show in no time. Don't worry about buying special equipment either. Alitu automatically cleans your audio so you sound crisp and clean. So if you're thinking about starting a podcast, stop thinking and start doing by clicking on the link in the show notes.